This morning, we're going to be in the 12th chapter of Judges. The title of our sermon this morning is Pride and the End of Yephthah. Pride and the End of Yephthah. We'll be in Judges 12, 1 through 7. Now, as you, if you're here at 10 o'clock, you heard that our clock in the back is wrong, so I'm going to try and pay attention to my watch. But if you know me, you know that doesn't matter. I'm just going to, I'm going to preach till I get done. <laughs> but I'll make you feel good that I've got a watch out here that I'm taking, keeping an eye on. So, we're talking about pride today. That's, that's like one of the critical issues that we see emerge as we come to the end of the account of this judge, Yephthah, in ancient Israel. And as we know, pride is an insidious, infectious sin. It, it, it operates in a seemingly harmless or even appears beneficial to us at, at times. Think how, how highly pride is praised in our current day and age, which really isn't much different from any other age. If we, you know, if, we, if we read the Bible and then think that we're you know, there in the first century in the New Testament, as the apostles write, it's like, wow, this is just like what's going on today. And even so, you know, in, in the Old Testament, in the ancient days, we see this. But pride is stealthily treacherous and, and deceitful. It produces a grave effect on the prideful, and it lures us into a trap and ensnares us. Now, I happen to look through the Baker Encyclopedia of Psychology and Counseling to see what it had to say about pride. This is a resource book for, for pastors on how to deal with issues that their, their um, congregants may have. And it does address pride and describes pride as unreasonably high self-esteem. And it says, interestingly, something that we know, that pride is frequently alluded to in Scripture, but not of much interest to contemporary psychology. I think we know that. But it's interesting to see it you know, actually in print. And it suggests that perhaps the reason for such neglect of a critical human fault, notice how it describes pride as a fault, not as a good thing. The reason for it is found in the late 20th and early 21st century Western mindset, which sees less wrong with pride than with inferiority complexes and less offensiveness in pride than in inconspicuous modesty. We think it's okay for people to say, hey, look at me, but then we worry about people that are like, eh, they don't want to be in the limelight. They don't want to be in the spotlight. And of course, the Bible's view of pride is something we need to consider. And as you undoubtedly know, it does not paint a positive picture of pride. Proverbs tells us that pride goes before destruction. You're prideful, you're heading for something bad. You're heading for a crash. You're heading for destruction. 
Both Peter and James in their letters to the church in the New Testament tell us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Back to Proverbs, we are told, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. You see, we have this counterintuitive thing that we see time and time again in God's word that tells us that things in reality, in the true reality of God, are different than what we in our cultures and societies manufacture, that we shouldn't turn to our society and culture for role models, for examples. Because the Bible also shows us examples of human pride, people with that are very prideful, with pride in the Bible. And these are not good examples when we consider them. In Daniel chapter 4, we have Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who was judged for his proud spirit. For seven years, he is basically made insane and, and made to wander in the fields like an animal. Then in Esther, the book of Esther, Haman, who plotted against the Jews was hanged on his own gallows. This man who was beset with pride brought about his own end. And Pharaoh, the mighty Pharaoh of Egypt, fell from power because of pride. Christ himself declared to us in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now, the Lord, when he spoke these words, he wasn't talking about, um, go ahead and build yourself up because I will make you humble as a good thing. It was like, you're going to be humbled in a way that you're not going to be really comfortable with. And maybe in an, in an eternal uh, perspective. So this thing, this pride, this sin was, was what we call a besetting sin or a constant sin for Yephthah culminating in his tragic vow that we, we looked at previously. And we're going to see also at the end of Yephthah's account, tragic pride is a besetting sin for others in Israel. So if you haven't already, please take your Bibles and turn to Judges chapter 12, and we're going to begin reading that chapter, first seven verses. I'm only going to start with verse 1 which reads, The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Yephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. So what we see here is an unnamed military leader in Ephraim, basically the counterpart to Yephthah. So they're on each side of the Jordan River. Ephraim's on the west. Uh, Yephthah and the Gileadites are on, on the east side, um, calls out the, the fighters, the military men of Ephraim. And then they cross the Jordan River over to the Gileadites' side on the east. And the implication, what they say, they imply that when Yephthah called out the troops to fight the Ammonites, Yephthah had crossed the Jordan, into Ephraim's territory, but had not called Ephraim out to fight. Then Yephthah crosses back over the Jordan River 
and does battle with the Ammonites without paying a visit to Ephraim. So they claim that Yephthah intentionally snubbed them, left them out of this battle, and they say they will pay Yephthah back for this slight. And we can see a parallel between Ephraim's behavior and Ammon's behavior. However, this conflict is not about land like it was with the Ammonites. It's about leadership. The Ephraimites demand an explanation from Yephthah as to why he did not summon them for help in the war. And, but they're not prepared to acknowledge any leader of Israel who acts independently of Ephraim. That's where their issue is right here. How dare you didn't involve us in this thing because we are Ephraim. And Ephraim has prime land in the central hill country of Israel. So they see themselves as one of Israel's leading tribes. And we can see their wounded sense of pride in their statement to Yephthah, where in the Hebrew, the personal pronoun goes before the verb. And what they're saying, literally, and us, you did not call. How important they are. Yephthah has a problem with pride himself. Through his tragic vow of his daughter, the sacrifices of his daughter, which in effect caused him to lose his house or dynasty, you know, house in the old um, aristocratic term. So he's already lost his house. He has no offspring. His line's going to die out with him. Now Ephraim in anger threatens to burn down his physical house around him. But Ephraim's pride is going to bring them to tragedy. They're just fighting mad at being ignored in the call of arms to, to Amon. Well, let's look at verses 2 and 3. And Yephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites. And the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Now, true to form, we've seen this with Yephthah before, he tries to talk his way out of another crisis. There's, a, there's five parts to the speech he's given. And Yephthah is great at making speeches. He's, he's quite the, um, the persuasive talker. The first part of his speech, he gives an introduction. In the ESV, which I'm using, it reads, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. Well, that's translated correctly. It could literally be translated with Ephraim, or excuse me, Yephthah saying, I am a man of much contention. That is, that he's saying he's a quarrelsome man. He's telling the Ephraimites that his entire life has been one of dispute and struggle. The Ephraimites' bruised ego, in this case, leads them to a similar conflict. If you remember the account of Gideon back in chapter 8, they were very angry with Gideon, claiming that he did not call them out to fight against the Midianites. And perhaps this is in the Ephraimites' mind. Maybe they remember this incident, and they remember how Gideon 
Gideon was a smooth talker. He soothed them over with apologetic words and acknowledged their greatness in Israel. He, he, he pumped them up and made them feel good about themselves. This isn't going to happen with Yephthah. Prideful Ephraim has met their match with this man of contention. Yephthah has lived a life of conflict, as he has said. He's now in his fourth and final stage of conflict. His first contention was with his family. Second contention was with his own tribe. Third contention was with the foreign enemy, the Ammonites. And fourth, now lastly, he has contention with another Israelite tribe. The second part of his short speech, he accuses the Ephraimites of failing to respond to his call to arms. So he puts the shoe on the other foot, shifting the the neglectful snub back to Ephraim and adding a life-threatening element to this competition of wounded pride that they almost cost him his life. Because he claims to have summoned them to rescue him from the Ammonites. Now, whether or not this was true, we cannot tell because the narrator has not told us that Yephthah was ever in the clutches of the enemy, nor does the narrative tell us that he had actually summoned the Ephraimites. So we just have Yephthah's word here on that. In the third part of this speech, he praised his own courage and initiative in the critical moment of this conflict with the Ammonites. He says, realizing he wasn't getting any help from the Ephraimites, he risked his life and crossed over the river into the camp of the Ammonites. His self-congratulatory praise stands in stark contrast to the narrator's silence regarding heroics on Yephthah's part. We're not told any of this. Then, fourthly, he praises Yahweh for coming to the rescue when Ephraim ignored his cry for help. And then lastly, he rebuked the Ephraimites for threatening him. And at the end of verse 3, we see he asks a rhetorical question. He's not expecting an answer from this. He doesn't want an answer. He asks them, why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? He's not seeking an explanation. What follows, we see that he doesn't want to negotiate a settlement. He's not looking for an answer. He's ready to fight. In examining Yiftah's speech as a whole, we see something interesting. We saw the same thing with his tragic vow to sacrifice his daughter. When his daughter came out to meet him, we saw what we're seeing here, his use of personal pronouns referring to himself. He makes every crisis about himself. And in this short speech to Ephraim, His reference to my people in verse 2, notwithstanding, this is full of words like I, me, my, repeatedly. It's all about Yephthah. So really what we can see from this is the Ephraimites' hostility is a personal matter to him. They had challenged his leadership. It was not a moral matter to him, nor a matter of Israelite solidarity. Unlike his speech to the king of Ammon before the battle with the Ammonites, he makes no reference to Yahweh as the judge. 
He does mention Yahweh, of course, briefly, but it's only to strengthen his case against the Ephraimite complaint. Unlike Gideon, Yephthah isn't interested in winning over those who have made themselves his enemy. First, he cuts them down with his tongue. Then he's going to cut them down with his sword. This brings us to my first point that I'd like to make. And that is, our reliance is on the Lord, not man. Our reliance is on the Lord, not man. Not anyone residing in the White House in Washington, D.C., not anyone meeting in those glass skyscrapers of the UN in New York City. Not those planning and organizing in NATO headquarters in Brussels, Belgium. Nor is our reliance on any man sitting on a throne in a gilded palace in Rome. Our reliance is solely on the Lord. And when we do receive aid from a human source, we must realize there is the hand of God behind it, guiding and moving it forward. And God may use unexpected resources to rescue his people. We see that with Yephthah. Yephthah is one of the last people, if you just knew his character, what he was about, that you would think would be risen up by the Lord as a deliverer. But here... Ephraim's pride causes them to stumble badly in regards to how Yahweh chose to deliver Israel from the Ammonites. You think about it, really, Ephraim's beef is with God because God didn't choose them to be the deliverers of Israel. And they felt and thought that they were the obvious choice. They were great in Israel. So this overarching pride causes a terrible divide in Israel. It's not the only time in the Bible that this happens. A similar thing almost happened during the time of Christ's earthly ministry. During the time when Jesus determinedly traveled to Jerusalem for the very last time to complete the once and for all time sacrifice. They're on the road to Jerusalem. And Mark, in his gospel, in Mark chapter 10, 35 through 45, he tells us at this time, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, now these two men, brothers, are part of the innermost circle that Jesus had, which was James, John, and Peter. The, most inner, the innermost of the inner band of 12. They come up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. <laughs> and he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? I think our Lord knew what was coming. And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, 
you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten, that is the other members of the inner band, heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. And whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now this brings me to my second point, point number two. Worldly power dynamics are antithetical, that is, they're directly opposed to a proper biblical worldview. Worldly power dynamics are antithetical, directly opposed to a proper biblical worldview. So as we can see in this account from the Gospels, John and James desired important positions in the coming kingdom. Their pride thirsted for the power and recognition of being adjacent to the king's throne. But they really didn't understand Christ's kingdom at this point. Nor did they understand that he would drink from the cup of the Father's wrath to inaugurate his kingdom. I think they just said yes to whatever Jesus said to them without knowing and not asking questions about it. They thought they deserved to be first amongst the twelve. So they secretly tried to work a deal with their master. And when the rest of the inner band heard about this, they were angry. And in a worldly organization, just think about this, this would have led to all sorts of trouble. And if you've been in an organization, employment, that sort of thing, of more than three people, or three people or more, undoubtedly you've experienced something like this, the power plays and the politics and and the shifting, you know, and angling for position in the organization. But as he does every time, Jesus changes everything. He tells them, you're not to be like other rulers, the rulers of the nations whom the Gentiles call rulers. No, you'll be like me who came to serve and gave his life and to give his life for others. He grants them that they will indeed do what they said they were able to do, follow him in drinking his cup and in his baptism. In other words, they will suffer martyrdom as a testimony to the faith that the Holy Spirit will fill them with in the near future. Now the book of Acts tells us that James was the first martyred amongst the twelve. He was beheaded by Herod Agrippa, the first in about 44 AD. And tradition in the church tells us that John was sentenced to death by the emperor Domitian and that he was to be boiled alive in oil, which happened and from which he returned unscathed. He came out of the cauldron unharmed. That's just church, church tradition. We don't know for certain if it happened, but we do know that John was exiled to the island of Patmos. So he did suffer what is considered martyrdom. 
But this thing that they were grasping for, that John and James were grasping for, to sit at Christ's right hand and left hand, the Lord tells them has already been decreed. It is for those for whom it has been prepared. It's already been prepared. And human nature, apart from Christ, that is, being what it is, John and James could have started a conflict within the twelve that quickly spun out of control, like Ephraim and Gilead's conflict. Ephraim, one of the major tribes of Israel, like the sons of Zebedee, thought they would deserve special recognition and special privileges. They also thought that the kingdom should be centered around them. They probably didn't want to be on the right hand or the left hand. They probably wanted to be smack dab in the middle from what we're seeing in the text. And it is pride that makes people want to dominate, to control, and be recognized. Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary on Judges, says this, and I think we should take heed to his comment. He says, we don't like to play the Christian game unless people will appropriately stroke our egos for doing so. But at the same time, we must recognize there are many humble servants of Christ that serve the Lord's people and and shun recognition and shun the spotlight. And we have those people here at Sovereign Grace and we give thanks for people like that in our local church and in the universal church. Moving on in Judges, now verses 4 through 6. Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to them, Are you an Ephraimite? When he said no, they said to him, Then say, Shibolet. Shibolet. And the Ephraimite would say, Sibolet. For he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. My third point today is that paganization, that is disobedience to God's covenant by his covenant people, leads to the loss of blessing. Paganization, disobedience to God's covenant by his covenant people, leads to loss of blessing. Now here's something interesting about that word, that, that, that test word that the Gileadites would use, shibolet. This is something I didn't know. I don't want you to think I know this stuff, because I've got, I got, got to work hard and look stuff up. Well, the word means either ear of corn or flowing river or stream. It can mean either. Well, the Ephraimite dialect apparently did not differentiate the sound of sh, s-h, from s-s-s. Unique features that mark a distinction between dialects, dialects like this are called isoglosses. I didn't know that. Isoglosses, remember that word. Maybe someday you can use it. It's very difficult for someone whose language has dropped or merged sounds that affect meaning. That's called phonemes. There's another word for you. It's very difficult for them 
to hear the difference with phonemes. We can think of um, dialects in, uh, that, we're, that we encounter today, how someone from certain regions of the country um, talk differently uh, than others. And um, I remember when I was, I was young, uh, working in Los Angeles, there was another deputy, and at that time, our department had recruited all over the U.S. to try and bring personnel um, into the department. We were very shorthanded. And so there were, there were deputies that were from the Midwest and the East Coast and so on and so forth. And there was one guy from the Midwest, and he had a Midwestern accent. And I asked him, what do we sound like to you? Is there such a thing as a California accent? He goes, no, you guys are just like, you're just like grammatically perfect when you talk. So I guess, you know, unless you're doing valley speak or, you know, that sort of thing that people are, or the, the surfer dude, um, which is my favorite California uh, dialect, then, you know, people aren't going to know the difference. As Californians, I guess we got it dialed in right for once in one thing. So... So here what we see, back to, back to the, the, the sermon proper, Gilead taunts Ephraim for their distinctive speech and inability to pronounce certain sounds, while Ephraim ridicules Gilead from being from the wrong side of the tracks or river in, in this case. So animosity between Ephraim and Gilead we see is heightened by insults. Disparaging and demeaning words flow easily, don't they, when we allow hatred to overcome us. And we can see this in words. As, as, you, as you know, the letter of James in the New Testament speaks a lot about our words, right? About our, our tongue and how we speak. Now, in the, in the letter of James, and this is not the James who has his head cut off by Herod Agrippa. This is James, one of the sons of Joseph and Mary, of the four other boys that are half-brothers to Jesus. These are the guys that ridicule Jesus during his ministry. Yet James comes to faith in the Lord Jesus when the Lord Jesus resurrected, appears to him. But he writes about this in his letter in, in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war with you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly or spend it on your passions. Then in chapter 3, 8 through 10, he says, But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. So, as we saw earlier, Yephthah's leadership drives the Ammonites back and defeats them. But now, as we read in today's account, 42,000 Ephraimites, who apparently were not as mighty as they thought, if they got slaughtered to this great extent, they join Yephthah's daughter in the grave. 
whether from excessive zeal, as in Yephthah's vow, or stubborn pride, Ephraim's response to the defeat of the Ammonites, tragedy overshadows the salvation Yahweh gave in the battlefield victory. The takeaway message here in this account in Judges of Yephthah is this. Human arrogance and human foolishness stood in opposition to the Lord's salvation. Yahweh provided salvation through a human deliverer, but human involvement in that very salvation marred it. This is an inevitable. And inevitability is rooted in our fallen condition. This is seen in the imperfect salvation that comes from each of the human judges that we have considered going through this book. It points us to one thing. Perfect salvation can only come from one who is perfect, uniquely found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this account ends with verse 7. Yephthah judged Israel six years, then Yephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. So the ending, the short ending of this account is very revealing. Here is the fifth of the six major judges, and the next major judge we come to is the very last, and that's Samson. And at the end of the accounts of the first four major judges... Otniel, Ehud, Barak, and Gideon, at the close of their accounts, we are told by the narrator that the land had rest. This is not the case with Yephthah, nor will it be with Samson either, the last judge. These accounts end simply with the fact that they judged Israel. So with Yephthah and Samson, there is no rest for the land. Rest is a condition that only the Lord can bring. Man, apart from the Lord, can only bring unrest. And Yephthah's judgeship is the shortest of all the six major judges. And that's not just a point of trivia. There's a, there's a theological message in that. We find that numbers are often symbolic in the Bible. And so six years, besides being an extremely short time, think about it, that's less than two presidential administrations, which that may not be a good example because those seem to go on and on at times, don't they? So not, let's not use that one. Six years, okay, so um, you know, high school and two years in community college. Think if you have children that are of that age, think how quickly that time went by. So six years can go by very quickly. Okay, for the symbolism here, let's contrast the number six with the number seven as it is presented in the account of the judges. Seven symbolically represents perfection or completeness. Yet Israel apostatizes and turns to other gods seven times. We read this in chapter 10 of Judges. Symbolizing 
that Israel was in complete apostasy seven times. They've, 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 they've done it all. They could, they could become no more apostate than that. And in response to that, we read that Yahweh saved Israel out of their enemies' hands seven times. This is telling us that the Lord is perfect in his salvation, that no matter what the Israelites had done turning to other gods, he rescued them seven times. He's perfect and complete. So six, of course, is one less than seven, right? So being one less than seven, completeness, six signifies incompleteness. It signifies human failure or even abject spiritual failure, as in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, with a symbolic number of 666 that everybody, whether Christian or not, has heard of. So in Yephthah's six years, we are to see that he fell short, that he failed in what he could have done. He lacked perfection as deliverer of Israel. And his one success against Ammon is in contrast with these many failures. Again, the Bible presents us with humans that are like us, that fail, that have terrible flaws, that do sometimes horrendous things, with the, with the point of us realizing we cannot do this. We are not capable of saving ourselves, delivering ourselves. There must be one that can do this who is coming. That's the whole point in this in the Old Testament. Besides this, what other theological implications do we find in Yephthah's account? Some that I think are pretty striking given our day and age. He's a man without a father. This problem of fatherlessness plagues mankind. Doesn't that resonate with us today? With the crime that we see in, in our large cities? With the fact that we know many young people, many young boys are growing up without fathers, without role models. And Yephthah, this fatherless man, he's placed between two women who are pivotal in his circumstances. Now, that's not a bad thing. I grew up for a time without a father. My father died when I was very young. And my mother, my grandmother, were very important in my life and had a big impact on me, a very positive impact. But in these circumstances, let's examine this. His mother is a harlot. And his daughter, his only child, is, is the other end of his life. But his mother cannot provide him with what can only come from a father. He's missing the covenant head of the family in his life. This is the model that God's word gives us of family, that, there's, that there is a husband, there is a father who is covenant head. And Yephthah finds no loyalty in the familial covenant unit. Remember, he's thrown out of the household. He's sent out to make his own way in the world, and he makes it as an outlaw. 
His situation illustrates the problem of Canaanite-style leadership that Israel is modeling. They were supposed to inhabit and possess the land of Canaan and drive out the wicked inhabitants. And what they're doing is they're driving some out, but they're taking on the characteristics of the Canaanites. They are becoming the pagans that they are to drive out. And this Canaanite-style leadership where positions of authority are disconnected from covenantal loyalty and devotion to God is what he's modeling. Biblical headship in the family, the church, and other spheres of our life is about responsibility, not privilege. Its strength is accountability, not power. And one's personal shalom or well-being is brought about by promoting the shalom or well-being of those who are placed in one's care. That is biblical leadership, covenantal leadership. That brings us to my fourth point. The Lord supplies by his providence the word, by his providence and word, what we lack through circumstance. The Lord supplies by his providence and word what we lack through circumstance. Those without proper fathers find a father, a true father in God. God's word provides us with, go- with godly role models for fatherhood. Those without proper mothers for role models are given godly role models for motherhood in God's word. And those without proper role models for marriage are instructed in the God-given responsibilities as husband or wife in God's word. Now, I did not grow up in a Christian home. I grew up in a broken home. I grew up in a home that was damaged by drugs, by alcohol, by suicide, by various wacky cult religions. I knew I did not have a role model around me. I did not want to be like the men I saw around me. I found role models, though. I was led to role models in God's word. And so, yes, those of us that do not have good, proper Christian upbringing, the Lord does rescue us also. I'm not saying that that one way is better than the other. It's just that God is merciful to both. Those in in the good Christian homes, God bless them. And those in the other homes... God bless them also. Let me pose to you this, 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 an illustration. <clears throat> I want you to think of Hall of Fames. We've all heard of different Hall of Fames. The Baseball Hall of Fame in, in Cooperstown, New York. The Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. The Cowboy Hall of Fame, Yeehaw, in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Whatever your thing is, I'm sure there's a hall of fame for it. If you like cake decorating, cookie baking, there's undoubtedly a hall of fame. Do you imagine that any members of any hall of fame, or not, I shouldn't say any members, that the members in general of any hall of fame have led unsullied lives, that they are paragons of virtue, possessing stellar, unblemished character? No, of course not. They're, not. they're not included in such Hall of Fames for extraordinary... Um, well, they are, I should say they are included in the Hall of Fames for extraordinary abilities 
in a very narrowly defined field of endeavor. They're very, very good. They are the world's best at a certain thing. Well, and I, I talk about this because the Bible gives us a hall of fame, so to speak. We often refer to, in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, we often refer to that as the hall of faith, making a wordplay off of the hall of fame. And strangely enough, and I've discussed this with, with several of you, and it's something that I think needs a, a closer examination, Yephthah's name is found in Hebrews chapter 11. So Hebrews 11.32, I'm going to look at that for the last part of the sermon. It reads, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Yephthah. So he lists, the author of Hebrews lists four of the six major judges here in, in uh, this verse. And then he goes on, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith, and these are things that these people who are listed in verse 32, this is what they've done. They've conquered kingdoms. They haven't done all of this. You know, you can, you can match up uh, names if you're familiar with the, with the Bible figures. They've conquered kingdoms. They've enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and, made, and were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign enemies to flight. This last here is what we're looking at with Yephthah and the other judges. That's what they were raised up for, for this specific thing. So the judges here are not listed chronologically in Hebrews 11.32. They seem to follow a list that is in the prophet Samuel's farewell speech to Israel. He talks about these judges. In 1 Samuel 12.11, we read Samuel's words, And the Lord sent Yerubbabel, that's Gideon, and Barak, and Yephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. See, Samuel agrees with the author of Hebrew, who agrees with Samuel. The faith that these men displayed was in their raising up to fight the enemies of Israel. Nothing about them being great moral supermen, being examples of the greatest ethics in human history. No. They're praised for delivering Israel, out of the hands of enemies on every side. So we have Gideon. Remember, Gideon initially was lacking in faith. He was, he was hiding in a wine press when the angel of the Lord found him. And he put the Lord God to test twice with the, the fleece of wool. But by faithfully following instructions from God, Gideon became a true hero of faith. Barak, his lack of faith, caused him to demand the prophetess Deborah go with him in his military campaign. He wouldn't go alone. And Deborah had to prod him. She says, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Caesarea into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? She's kind of like, shoo, shoo, get out there. Do what you're raised up to do. 
And Samson, of course, then there's Samson. He captures the imagination of everyone who relishes physical prowess. So God made him so strong. But he had a weakness, didn't he, for the women, especially pagan prostitutes. That's a big weakness. His love affair with Delilah not only took from him the gift of strength that Yahweh had given him, it also placed a permanent blot on his name. Yet, we are told, Samson displays his faith in Yahweh. We see it in his account. We're going to come to it. After he's captured by the Philistines and they mutilate him, they blind him, um, they put him to, to work pushing the, the millstone. Um, he calls out to the Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. See, his primary motive, we see that, is, is his own vengeance for his personal injury, but it also includes the enemies of God's people, which are the enemies of God. We're told at the end of his life, those he killed in his death were more than those whom he'd killed during his life. And Yephthah, of course, he's permanently tied to this rash vow he made, which compelled him to sacrifice his only daughter. Nevertheless, we are told that the spirit of the Lord was upon Yephthah. And he testified to the absolute sovereignty of the Lord in his speech to the Ammonite king. And the Lord used him to defeat the Ammonites and to punish the wayward tribe of Ephraim, I might add. All four of these mentioned in Hebrews 11.32 were owners of many frailties and failures. The God who could use men like Yephthah and Samson is a God of great patience in whose hands the long scroll of history is written. And we're being reminded by this verse in Hebrews that it's not about great people who are the, who are the origin of uh, beneficent providence. This is not the record of great people who deserve a medal in Hebrews, but of ordinary flawed people in a fallen world whom God uses in extraordinary ways. It's not what these people do It's how God used them. I want us to see that. It's not about their works. It's how God worked them. In this age of cancel culture that we live in, perfect lifelong compliance to the current demands of culture is required. One cannot even violate the, the demands of the culture in the future that we don't know what they are, but if you, if you, if you, if you violate them now and then this is, comes about later, you're going to be cultured, canceled <laughs> by culture. I don't think you'd be cultured. I don't think that, no. Yet, don't we easily fall into this mindset ourselves? Have you heard people say these phrases, she's a real Christian, or he's a big Christian, and I always want to ask, how big is he? Is he like really, really tall? Is he like really, really wide? How big is he? No, but the, the, the idea here is that um, people look at outward appearances, don't they? they? They look at what is displayed in public, right? That's what we do. And that's how we, that's how we evaluate people. We've, we've got to do that. We have little else. But we don't see their heart, do we? So you could have someone that comes across as a big Christian who struggles and is doing their best. 
or one that comes across as a she's a a real Christian. Well, maybe she's just play acting. Maybe she's putting on a show. We don't know. The Lord God knows. That's the important point. We must be very careful that we do not misunderstand faith. Faith does not come through moral perfection. It's not the result of our own best efforts. In the 4th and 5th centuries, there was this well-known preacher and pastor, John Chrysostom. Chris, Chris Ustom. I always have problems with that Greek. It means golden mouth. John golden mouth. That's much easier. So, so John the golden mouth, he, he had a commentary on Hebrews 11.32. And he said, some find fault with Paul because he puts Barak and Samson and Yephthah in these places. What sayest thou? After having introduced the harlot, he's talking about Rahab, who was introduced prior to the verse we looked at. After having introduced the harlot, shall he not introduce these? For do not tell me of the rest of their life, but only whether they did not believe and only whether they did not believe and shine in faith. That's a sounds awkward. But he's saying they they believed. And they shone at the point in time when God would have them shown. And these four judges that are in Hebrews 11.32 are singled out for being recipients of God's promise over their enemies and God's enemies. Those who oppose God's people are opposing God. Not about their stellar moral conduct. Admittedly, it's difficult to imagine Yephthah as a man of faith because of his tragic vow to sacrifice his own daughter. This is hard for us to move beyond, isn't it? And I really don't think we need to move beyond it. This is not something that should be hidden or forgotten. This is something that is part of what God wants to teach us here. Because his horrendous failing is in contrast to God, who gave him the faith to do the impossible. As a fatherless outlaw, rejected by everybody, he led the Transjordan tribes against the mighty Ammonites. He was given a task, and he had faith that he would accomplish the task the Lord set out for him. So Hebrews 11 is not about people that are better than everyone else. It's It's about people like us, flawed and fallen, given a gift of faith to accomplish what God has decreed for them to accomplish. Nothing in this hall of faith, in the whole chapter of Hebrews 11, is accomplished apart from God. This is what John Calvin says. This is his insight into this. He writes, It is ridiculous of Gideon to go and attack a host of enemies with 300 men. Yeah, it is to make his men shake their pitchers in their hands and engage in an empty ghost play. As for Brock, he was no match for his enemies and ruled by the counsel of a woman. Samson was a mere farmer and was used only to the tools of, of a farmer. What could he have done against proud conquerors whose power had brought the whole populace to subjection? And who would not at first thought condemn the foolhardiness of Yephthah, who set himself up as the champion of a people who were already lost? But because they all followed God's leading and, inspired by his promises, took hold of the task enjoined upon them, 
the Spirit glorified them by his witness. Therefore, the apostle, the writer of Hebrews, attributes their every praiseworthy deed to faith. Notice, Calvin is saying every praiseworthy deed. He's not saying every deed praiseworthy. Not praising these men for everything they did. He's pointing out the problems they had. Even though there was not one of them whose faith was not lame. That's the thing about Calvin. Boy, he just cuts right to the quick. And he calls, you know, things what they need to be called. And he doesn't beat around the bush. Gideon was too slow in taking up arms and had trouble in daring to commit himself to God. Barak at first shook in his boots and was forced into battle by Deborah's insults. This is Calvin still. Samson was so overcome by the, the coaxing of his concubine that he was senseless enough to betray the safety of the whole people as well as his own. Yephtah, having led let himself in for a stupid vow and being stubborn enough to perform it, cruelly spoiled a splendid victory with the death of his own daughter. So in every one of these saints we meet something which deserves censure. And yet faith, however deformed and imperfect, is approved by God. Therefore the wrongs which burden us should neither dishearten us nor break us down, provided only that we follow our calling by faith. Calvin was a great pastor. He was a wonderful theologian, but he had a pastor's heart. Those are words of healing to those that struggle with their failures. So in closing, my thoughts, be mindful of God's gift of faith to you. Give thanks. If you lack faith, ask for it. Respond to the means of grace God has provided to us and guard against the sin of pride which hinders Christian love and unity. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for this message that you have given us from your word. We give thanks for the faith that you gift to us. Father, we would be lost without what you provide to us, Father, we know we could not do it on our own. Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit keeps us from pridefulness. Father, this is, this is a, a stumbling block to many of us, including me, Father. Help us to work on this by recognizing our sinful pride and turning to you in repentance and in prayer. Father, we give thanks For this day of worship, we ask that you bless the evening worship to come. Father, bless my beloved brothers and sisters as they go out from us today. Father, we give thanks for the new life that is among us. Father, the gift of life is something that we just marvel at, and we know it is one of the greatest blessings that you give us, and we give thanks. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.